Hello World, retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hi, I'm your host, Brad Rayford. And I'm Christy Hornland. Welcome to the Risk Factors Perspectives in IoT podcast. And today we're speaking to Jeff Cornelius from Darktrace about behavioral cognition, context-dependent memory, and how artificial intelligence can make cyber smarter. Let's dive in. Hey, Jeff, thanks for coming and being on the show with us today. Thanks, Brad. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we get into today's topic, uh, Christy has a question for us. It's a bit of an icebreaker, uh, sometimes a little bit off the beaten path, but sets the tone a little bit for for the show uh, and and gets us out out in front of ourselves, comfortable talking. So Christy, (laughs) of course, today. I can't wait. So first, first I want to ask, I mean, Jeff, I know, I know that you have quite a few things going on in your life. I know you got quite a few pets, you got kind of a farm situation going on, but I want to ask, you know, what's a, what's a hobby of yours, Jeff? What's something that you, that you go back to? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, lots of, uh, lots of history skydiving, lots and lots of skydives in my, in my past. Uh, but most recently the past, say five, seven years, it's racing motorcycles on open courses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So he's a high octane type of man that we got on the podcast with us today. So I was asking that to frame up actually for a more interesting question. So I was watching a Netflix series that talks about kind of the future of things. I know Brad's been watching it as well with his kids, Um, but it came together with a pretty interesting concept about using AI to enhance a lot of, say, athletes, their performance, and really getting into, you know, is this augmenting some of the things that we traditionally perceive as you get better at it just by doing it and just by feeling it out, um, some of those more organic things. And so I was curious, you know, say you're really into motorcycles. If you were to have the opportunity to have an AI built coach to analyze your kind of skill set is that something that you could see yourself going and diving into? Or would you say, I've seen too much in this space. I'm keeping this one organic out here. Interesting question. Yeah. And I can see why you you threw that out there as an icebreaker. I've been riding motorcycles since I was probably 12 years old and I'm almost 60 now. So a very long time. And I've found that organically, um, I've learned much, much more by experiencing and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Where I think AI and and machine learning and all other forms of of mechanical uh, engagement uh, would benefit is taking the pain out of the learning process, right? So the thousands of stitches I've had, the multiple broken bones I've had, the concussions, all of those could be mitigated by leveraging an AI type analyst that would say, hey, Jeff, you, you trail break too hard into that corner. That's resulting in a possible low side, as an example. Um, yeah, I think I think I would in, I would I would embrace that. I would embrace an AI coach. You know what came to mind when you said that, and you gave the twelve year old age gap. I was thinking about Guardians of the Galaxy, like the introductory scene is him yeah. racing the car out, throwing it out yeah. over a cliff. That's yeah. what came to mind. I can imagine. <laughs> Skipping that part of the journey might be ideal. A few less yeah. trips to the emergency room, but yeah, 
but no, it, it is interesting. And I, I bring that up just because I know that we're going to get into some of the learning concepts behind AI as well as kind of what's the human component there as well. So mm-hmm. want to learn a little bit about you, a little bit about where we might go with this conversation, but yeah, just why not? It's kind of fun to think about it nowadays. I guess Without Brad, say, Brad, I know that you are actually getting into pickleball now. So I'll <laughs> ask you the same question for your pickleball game. Would you engage an AI coach? Um, I think when I when I think of that question, I, I think of my kids, right? And raising my kids and then how I was raised and I'm sure how my parents were raised of learn from other people's failures so you don't have to do it, right? Learn from their successes, learn from their failures. Similar to what a, an AI coach would do, would say like, do these five things or have this outcome and that's what will make you the best. Um. Now that I'm a little bit older, a little more seasoned, I have a couple of perspectives. One is I would love a pickleball AI coach. Like I'm older, I don't have the time <laughs> to go and make all the mistakes. So if there's an optimal path to, su- to success, I will take it. The second is, would I be who I am if I hadn't made those mistakes? Right? Because in our human experience, and this might be something we get into later, Jeff, is the difference between human learning and machine learning is how impactful those mistakes are to our overall development versus simply pursuing an optimal outcome, right? Uh, so I, I think the scars on my back, the stitches in, that I've had, uh, they're very, very valuable to me as a person. Uh, and so far, I like who I have become and who I am becoming. And I don't think I would change anything about that. Going forward, I, uh, I don't sleep a lot <laughs> with, with little kids running around. So I w- I w- anything I can do to make up some time uh, and still have fun with my family would be fantastic. I really thought that was going to be the segue to actually, if I could get sleep coach though, that would be my first priority. <laughs> I have one of those. So I, I wear, uh, I have some wearables that I use. Uh, and every day it reminds me like you need X hours of time in bed. I'm like, I don't, where am I going to get 16 hours in bed to make up for my sleep deficit? So that's kind of a losing proposition for me, but I do have that. And I just need not, not so great with it. Uh, but Jeff, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, for a lot of number of years, I've studied about learning. Uh, and then as our technology transitioned and, and made advances getting into the topic of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And uh, we wanted, we invited you on the show because, and I'm going to, spill out some of the things that I was researching and let me know if I get it right. Uh, you have a PhD in experimental cognition, right? And so when I looked up what is experimental cognition, uh, it, it tells me that it's the, you know, the study of the processes underlying behavior and cognition, such as knowledge acquisition, attention, language, learning, memory, perception, and thought. Ding, 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 uh, ding, ding. Perfect. Good. I love the internet. It's always so good. Uh, and then aside from... Your, your academic work, uh, you're also a co-author on a, a paper I found very fascinating, Context-Dependent Memory Under Stressful Conditions. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell, me, tell me a little bit about that paper. What, was the, what were the drivers for it? Uh, you know, I, I've had the pleasure of reading it, uh, but I know our listeners are probably Googling uh, when, they, when they hear this, what it is. But I found it a fascinating uh, research study on, on uh, parachuters. Right. Yeah. yeah. So give, give us a little background on it. So super simple. Um, I just started uh, skydiving on a drunken dare 
a friend of mine uh, had too much to drink one night and he challenged me and people know me well uh, know that when you challenge me, expect to be taken up on your challenge. Otherwise, don't challenge. Um, he said, I would never skydive. I was too much of a wimp, blah, 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 blah. I'm an academic. I said, done. You pay for it. I'll do it. Well, he paid for it. I jumped. He didn't. He chickened out. Then uh, about 400 jumps later, um, I realized through my uh, uh, doctoral work that um, con memory within context is well, memory is context dependent, or that was an assumption I had at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So high stress situations uh, either provide you an opportunity to enhance memory or debilitate your ability uh, to, to, to gain a, a memory. So we said, well, why not just throw people out of an airplane and ask them to recall words? Right. You talk uh, about a high stress environment. Right. Yeah. Right. No, someone who's never jumped before. So uh, we came up with a, a, a study plan and um, proceeded to, to execute the plan. Uh, execute's probably the choice of a bad word there. And we proceeded to engage the plan and uh, came up with that uh, the results from that paper. Um, I, I think it was a really interesting study. There are many things that I would do different about it now. Um, but I, I was really proud of the really proud of the paper that we wrote at the time. So what, what would be the the immediate conclusion that you would draw from it? When I read it, and granted, I'm not a PhD in experimental cognition, right? It seemed, uh, given the how the experiment was set up, right? Showing mm -hmm. people instructional videos on the mm -hmm. ground in a calm space, giving them instructions while they're in the plane, and then seeing how they recall that memory and execute or engage those activities mm -hmm. uh, in the moment of being flying out of a plane, uh, logic and simple emotion would say, if I learn it in a calm, controlled environment, I'm going to be better able to recall it when I'm in a high-stress situation. It's absolutely the finding, exactly the findings we, we, we came up with. And, and we, we supported those, that assumption and hypothesis perfectly, or not perfectly, but very, very closely. Um, very calm environments where you can assimilate information without the distraction of stress. Uh, precipitated an ability to recall that information very, very effectively and accurately under stressful situations. Learning something in a stressful situation uh, was highly correlated with the failure of recall uh, in, in, uh, in calm situations. So it was an interesting little study uh, dichotomy there. Okay. So now let's take that, that study and maybe not those exact principles of the study, but from a human-centric learning model Mm -hmm. uh, where there are conditions of stress versus unstressed and put it with machines and computers where stress mm -hmm. is not a variable, right? Unless, unless we're talking environmental stress exactly. or computational stress. Yeah, exactly. uh, but we'll use the, the emotional situation where high stakes environment, high stakes situation, computers don't feel those stakes, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is a computation. So as long as the computation is simple enough or has adequate time and resources to process, you should always achieve the best possible outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to set some common taxonomy uh, as we go towards uh, the conversation of AI learning and what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to start with a little bit of classical conditioning and operant conditioning, right? Some of the, probably those who have taken a high school psych course like myself, uh, that's kind of where our, our understanding of reinforcement-based learning comes into play, mm -hmm. right? So classical conditioning, Pavlov's dogs, right? That's what I think of. Uh, ring a bell, dog starts to salivate, 
right? Now, what I, what I pull out from that now that I'm older is that uh, this classical conditioning has no predictive quality, right? I can't use it for anything to predict the state of something else, right? Just because I ring the bell doesn't mean that the dog is hungry. All I've done is stimulus response. And it also doesn't account for any type of volition or free will, right? It's a forced response to a trigger. Whereas operant conditioning uh, is something that we use daily, whether we know it or not. And that's the uh, essentially the re reward punishment cycle, right? Of how we get feedback from our actions or the actions of others. And we, our brains take that and turn it into our knowledge, our wisdom, our experience. Our learning. Or our, into our learning, right? Let's, let's use the right words. Um, so in, I've broken it down into a couple of different ways that punishment or reinforcement is applied, right? And, and uh, there's positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. But I think a lot of times people confuse negative reinforcement with positive punishment. Yes. Right? And those are very different things, mm -hmm. right? And this is true, uh, especially, you know, like I said, I've got three little kids. So the, yeah. it gets thrown around in the parent circles, like negative reinforcement is bad. But what they mean is positive punishment That's may not right. be the most effective way. So positive reinforcement, do something specific, the desired action, get a reward, right? Negative reinforcement is not the application of a punishment, but it is the removal of a negative stimulus or an undesirable stimulus from a situation as an action or activity occurs. So uh, I use my dog for this example. When I want her to sit and she's walking around and she's on a lead, I can tug on her leash pull her up. And as soon as she sits, I let go of that tension and she feels that release of tension. And that's the desirable state she wants to be in. Right. I'm not punishing her for not sitting. I'm rewarding her through the removal of an undesirable situation or an undesirable condition. Right. Which is easy to misconstrue with a positive punishment. Yes. You do something wrong. You go to your room, you get grounded. Mm -hmm. And when we think about computers, they don't have, or machines, they don't have a positive punishment cycle, right? So how do we, how do we think about, or can we think about operant conditioning uh, as a way of modeling machine learning? Is that an accurate way to apply? Or is there a different type of learning style that predicates machine learning? It's a good question. And one that I think we need to look at volume of information as a control in a negative or operant conditioning removal of a negative stimulus. So in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence, the volume of content mitigates much of the need for uh, a negative reinforcement. And what I mean by that very simply is, the more content that an AI or machine learning algorithm can consume and compute, the more rapidly it arrives at a positive outcome or a decisive outcome. Let me use the word decisive outcome. Whether that outcome, whether that decisive outcome is positive or negative really doesn't matter at this point. You're really thinking about what's time to outcome, what's time to decision. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the critical component, taking out context, right? And taking it, well, not context, taking out the uh, human factor of, of, uh, cognition and emotion, you want time to decision or time to process. By removing 
by getting to that point sooner rather than later, you can take away the question or the challenge associated with negative reinforcement or negative outcome. And that's an important component when you're thinking about AI machine learning. One thing that I think most folks that I talk with uh, focus on are false positives in a detection environment, right? Sure. And that could be considered a negative, right? And you want to remove as much of that uh, as, as possible. Well, the more content that you can consume, the more quickly you get past those negatives because they wash out over time in a, in a fully, fully self, uh, self-learning artificial intelligence environment. And that's an important component when you're talking about removing that, that negative stimulus, uh, whatever that negative stimulus is, as in your dog leash, uh, mm-hmm. relaxing that tension. Um, because that negative tension then doesn't need to be delivered in the in the form of the example of the dog leash again, it doesn't need to be delivered to the algorithm for the algorithm to learn what really is true pattern, and that true pattern is is always going to wash itself out over time, or expose itself over time. Does that make sense? It does. I have a so if I when looking at human learning patterns and machine learning patterns, how much did we take from the way we understand our own method of learning and apply to machines. Is it, is there any type of real parallel there? Do we make, hopefully we made some improvements on, <laughs> on things that we think don't work well for human learning and to apply to machine learning. How, how, where, where does that commonality or is there a commonality between the two? Well, I've not done, I've not done an extensive amount of research or investigation in, in the arenas of what we've carried over from human learning to machine learning. But what I have observed in my few years in, in, in the business world and, and in this uh, particular space is that we're really, really poor at trying to figure out what the human component of learning looks like and then map that to a math or machine learning based deliverable of learning. We're very poor at that as humans mm-hmm. because we're very, very diff- it's very difficult for us to separate the emotionality or the cognition from the actual math, right? Um, there's some there's some really amazing work out of Cambridge University in the UK uh, being done right now on mapping to a math model the human emotive components. Um, there's obviously the, the Turing test was a was an early indicator of that, but where we're kind of going now in the math world is how do we pull out the subtleties of human learning capability and mathematically represent those? Well. It's it's literally it's literally like chicken and egg. Mm-hmm. We have to look at it from that perspective. Which really comes first? I've got to compute against something I don't understand fully, the human cognition component, or I've got to understand the human co- cognition component in order to write a math model associated with it. It's a really tricky space right now. And again, I I, I claim full naivete on, on on the space because I haven't done a lot of research in it, but. I know, simply put, it's very difficult for us to map that cognition to a math model right now. Yeah. Now, earlier, uh, you had mentioned that remove, as you remove the human element, there's the process of demotion. Now, as you said it, in, in context, I understood of removing the emotional mapping or trying to, re- you know, what is true data? Because right? mm-hmm. I think anybody, anybody who's seen enough procedural TV shows knows <laughs> that human witnesses to any event 
are going to have different perspectives based on their own personal emotional state. Right. Right. The, you know, in a car crash, right. Each driver is going to have their own perspective. They're the drivers around them, depending on what they were doing, stress, they're going to see different things, notice different things and recall different aspects of that incident. So is, am I correct in that, that definition of demotion is trying to parse the actual event data, removing the human attachments to it. Yeah. I'll give you an example to nail it down for you. Right. Um, When the door opens on an airplane for me to exit, I'm at my most calm. 99% of the people who are making their first jump, the moment that door opens, that's when they're at their highest anxiety level. Mm. It's not even in the air. It's when the door opens. It's that first gush of cold, cold air hitting you. The ability and experience of time or the experience of an event over and over and over gets you to a point where you can remove the emotion from it and just be purely analytical in the situation. So when the door opens, I go through all my safety checks, make sure my harness is buckled, all my safety gear is clear and, and, and concise. Everyone else, all, all those first jumpers or, or tandem jumpers, all they think about is, oh my God, that's cold, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my God, I'm about to throw myself out of an airplane with somebody strapped to me, blah, 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 blah. You get my point. I, on the other hand, I'm thinking, all right, let's go. Totally different mindset, totally different cognitive, emotional space. I guess from the standpoint of Jeff, what you were early, earlier saying about the volume of data that you actually ingest, I was thinking yeah. about the corresponding between some of the things that Brad was bringing up earlier about, you know, you got kids. I'm thinking I'm, I'm the youngest of two. My older brother had to sit through with me and do a lot of examples without wanting to engage, say, in negative or positive reinforcement. You think about some of the sibling dynamics there that play out. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking in terms of relating the human concept to a lot of the stuff that we're trying to achieve with data models, it is really how do you break out from you know, so many scenarios, so many days that you're going through as a person breaking out that I have learned this behavior or mechanism just by observing and Mm -hmm. that being the relation and that false positive piece that you were mentioning that we eventually say decrease the likelihood of it happening or remove it from coming out. I was almost thinking that's, that is maybe a more representative example of, again, it's not that there's a negative reinforcement. I can tell you, honestly, my brother didn't care if I was alive. Um, <laughs> so, so, but, but for most of that, just thinking about a lot of our data modeling as we're going through, it is a very interesting concept that you brought up, which is what is the underlying emotion and when is this happening as we're observing? But I just, as, as we're kind of talking about those two, it does feel like there is something that exists that way that Obviously, you know, a lot of what we do replicates just the way we experience life. That's the way that we're set up. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point. And it just dawned on me that I, I was dancing around a statement that I should have made in, in my example of skydiving. You know, over the thousands and thousands of skydives I have, I, there was a point where when that door opened, that emotionality hit and I was ripe for making a mistake, right? I didn't deploy my pilot chute at the right time leaving the door. Or if I had an entanglement, I didn't dis, you know, disconnect and, and deploy my, my, uh, my secondary chute um, at the right or appropriate time. Uh, 
But over thousands and thousands of skydives, you get to the point where the emotionality is gone and you make accurate decisions based on experience. And that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. Experience in the in the human world, world is data in the math world, right? Mm-hmm. That You can almost make those uh, synonymous. And I think that's an important component. Uh, when, you, when you're thinking about the way that data doesn't carry the emotionality that human cognition does, but the volume of human data or the volume of data needed to make those decisions accurate and clean is synonymous with the amount of experience that we have. So to your point, Brad, about raising your kids, their experience changes with every exemplar that you provide them. So they learn more and more and more, or more accurately, I should say, with each exemplar. That's it. Yeah, I should have said it that way better. <laughs> that probably is a better articulation than than just the the number of uh, of jumps with that door opening. <laughs> Hopefully, that was clear. Uh, hopefully, no, that, that was that clear. was great. That's what I wanted to get at. Was I just was wondering in the background if that lineation was there? But Brad, I interrupted you. You're welcome to jump into your question. <laughs> I have so many. I have several paths I want to go down now. Let's go down a path. Let's go down a path. We have hours. So uh, I want to I want to go down a, a bit of a cyber path and then back up um, to the broader AI path in uh, in a few minutes. So going back to the skydiving, uh, thinking of our cyber incident responders, right? SOC workers, mm-hmm. uh, those that are part of crisis teams. They are routinely, their day job is not to respond to incidents, right? Those should be black swan events, things that don't happen very often. Uh, And hopefully they're getting their training and their circumstances and uh, going through tests of those skills. So getting that experiential data before an actual event happens, right? Um, I guess my question is, knowing that a a larger ratio of their experience will come from a high stimulus cyber incident event. Mm-hmm. What sort of things should we be doing or thinking about to supplement them, augment their skills, uh, offload some of the highly emotional, emotionally loaded tasks uh, during these events so we can, A, increase the efficiency of the response, uh, and B, make sure that we're able to reinforce the right skills for people to have versus machines. Good question. So if you go back to the paper that you cited early on, the optimal place for a SOC operator to um, learn is in a low stress environment where they can systematically process information to glean as much intel, uh, skill, uh, background, experience as possible. Now, your next argument may be, but Jeff, they don't have that specific knowledge of zero day, nation state, advanced persistent threat, uh, insider, malicious insider, et cetera, et cetera. You're right. Um, They wouldn't have that. However, what they would have is the experience associated with not getting into the anxiety associated with an event that clouds their thinking and behavior. One of the, um, we've got a great, uh, our head of uh, cyber incidents here at Dark Trace, his name is David Mata, former CIA guy. Um, one of his things, it, whenever he's in a, with a customer, whenever they're in, a, in, the, in the throes of an investigation, David's first statement is, everybody take a deep breath. 
relax. Because you have to get back to that state of cognition that's stress-free or stress-reduced in order to be able to optimally cogitate. If you don't have that, you're not going to be able to process the information necessary to make the decisions that are required at the moment that you need to make them. So to answer your question in a long roundabout way, I would argue we need to be calm throughout the entire process. And gaining that ability and experience to remain calm in stressful situations is the hallmark of a very, very effective SOC team. That's, that's a good point. And he, but here's a, here's a dichotomy that I've seen in organizations. Uh, I have seen some very effective SOC teams and incident response teams that are calm out of the gate. Maybe they've, they've had the same advice of take a deep breath first, right? Uh, and when the SOC team is operating calmly, I have seen other members of the business team and the leadership team not operating calmly. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and yeah. imposing some of the, their emotional <laughs> stress onto the response team of like, well, how come you're not, yeah. why aren't you more worried about this? Why aren't you moving faster? Uh, so I know there, that, that creates some interesting dynamics within an Very. organization of like, we, yeah. and you have to build some of that trust and rapport. And hopefully it's not through experiential practicing or going through a number of incidents being like, look, we've responded to 300 of them this year so far. Uh, Hopefully it's a, we have drilled, we have it routinized, we know what we're doing, even if we don't know the exact combination of uh, attack scenario vectors, right, insider, external, whatever it happens Mm -hmm. to be, we have gone through the procedures enough to figure it out. We have the broad knowledge base to say, here's how we respond to things, and maybe you have some specifics for certain certain, uh, scenario types. As, As we think about coming out of an event... How can we best be posed to capture what went well and what didn't go well so that we can refine processes afterwards? Yeah, I really like the fact that you teed up this discussion with the the study that we did, because just about every question you have comes back to the basic premise of that study. You know, what's the best learning that we can glean from any event? The best learning is to take that step back and say, what worked well, what what didn't work well? 99% 99% of the time, you're going to find the things that worked well or the things that you were able to think through thoroughly, make rational, non-emotional decisions about, and then engage and process those behaviors. That's what you're going to learn, just about everyone I've ever experienced in my life. That's the way we learn best, right? So uh, on my other screen over here is a, uh, a screen grab of one of my a turn at Circuit of the Americas here in in Austin, Texas. Um, And it's one of my favorite pictures. I've leaned way over. It looks almost like a MotoGP racer, right? And I think about all the times that I went through that curve and every time I could have done something better. Well, the only times that I actually learned something about riding that bike on that track or any other track in in the world, for example, is when I'm calm and relaxed and think about what's the most what's the most relaxed way I could do this without killing myself? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really does come to that, right? At what's the most comfortable, relaxed, non-stressed situation I could put myself in so I can learn the most from this. And if you apply that to machine learning and artificial intelligence, what's the, what's the most effective way that we can provide the information to an algorithm so that that, al- that algorithm can consume, process that information and make 
quote unquote intelligent decisions. Again, air quotes, you can't see that on the book, on the blog, but it's uh, air quotes, intelligent decisions around a process. Well, the best way to do that is to give it every piece of information you could possibly give it. Everything that's possibly available to it so that it can consume all that information and come up with the best possible scenario. What I find really interesting, and I'm going to draw it back to the just comparison of person versus machine, is that what you described there in my mind goes to like mental fortitude. And basically you defined it for a person and you defined it for a system. For me, like when we talk about mental fortitude of those incident responders, that's having the understanding of how to do kind of that emotional baseline, how to actually bring yourself down to interact with others and to go through the processes that you have in other scenarios developed. But then you talked about from the system side, how can we provide them enough information that they can continue on, they can carry on. Both of those are very resilient efforts just based in human mm-hmm. versus machine. Good point. Good point. Well, you know, one thing, Christy, you bring up something that I've heard increasingly over the past six to nine months as I talk with uh, with customers and prospects and, and industry stalwarts is process fortitude. Right. So you're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. What's the process fortitude that's built into that by whomever is writing the algorithm? Right. By whomever is creating the artificial intelligence that takes that machine learning and then does something with it, makes a decision and affects an action. What's the process fortitude associated to that, right? Do do you get a 14-year-old who's maybe written 15 or 20 algorithms, or do you get a 25-year-old who's written 5,000 algorithms, right? That, That process fortitude is delivered with experience, I would I would argue, just as my ability to crash or not crash on a track or my ability to break my legs or not break my legs in a skydiving accident, that's all process-driven or mental fortitude driven by experience and that fortitude that we talked about. Jeff, I'm glad you brought up algorithms and process fortitude because I want to take us to uh, a deep secret love of mine, the game of chess. Uh-huh. One of my many failures in life. (laughs) (laughs) I I started playing chess with my dad. I think I was five, six years old. Uh, And truth be told, I was in chess club. I I loved it. I I used to collect chess sets from around the world when I would travel with my wife. We'd we'd go and pick up a chess board that was carved by local artisans. So it was very representative. Beautiful, beautiful things. Uh, But the... The computer Deep Blue, mm-hmm. right? One of the early supercomputers uh, went and faced off against Gary Kasparov, who arguably the best chess player in the world uh, in, in history. And there's, there's back in 1996 was the first time that a computer, Deep Blue, beat Gary Kasparov uh, in several matches. And... Uh, their rivalry started back in the 80s. I think it was 1986 when they first beat or when they first played. And Gary Kasparov beat the computer and said, you know, the programmers need to, need to teach this thing how to resign earlier. <laughs> he, called, he called Deep Blue's moves. Uh, he said that they lacked imagination, uh, that it was just like playing against a, a textbook. Like he, could, you know, he knew what was going to happen. Now, flash forward six, seven years later, and Gary Kasparov is playing against Deep Blue, and he's starting to lose. 
right? And he can no longer say that this computer lacks imagination. And there's been some uh, analyses of the way Deep Blue played the game of chess, uh, the moves that it made. And there were some startling realizations that Deep Blue had arrived at move combinations and strategies that humans hadn't ever conceived of. Mm. Maybe not that we couldn't conceive of it, but given our linear progression of, of knowledge being experiential and the time it takes for us to accumulate that experience, we hadn't gotten there in our own progression. Sure. Right. And so I'm, I'm wondering, does AI present with us or present to us the ability to have these quantum leaps in strategy, quantum leaps in mm-hmm. uh, imaginative approaches to things, new paradigm shifts because of how quickly you can compute large sets of data and acquire that experience Interesting, because it gets back to Christie's original question about would I would I choose an AI coach, right? It gets back to the point uh, we we both made, Brad, about the amount of content, the amount of data that's consumable, right? Um, Kasparov, arguably one of the best chess players in all of history, um, capable of consuming vast amounts of content, but is also hindered by what? Humanity, the inability of the brain to be a perfect repository, whereas machines are the perfect repository, right? They can store data for an inordinate, undisputed, unquestionable amount of time and use that data as necessary. Um, Back to Christie's question, would I choose a cyber or an AI coach? Well, if that coach could glean all the data points that I can't possibly consume, then I would absolutely leverage that. And I think you made the point, Brad, about anything moving forward. I want to learn to be a better pickleball player, for example. Yes, you would consume that content because it's something that one is not available to you or is two going to dra- dramatically enhance your uptake of that skill. I would argue that I have a fairly good feel for the way my bike goes around the track. Where I miss are the subtle things that I can't possibly consume because I'm focused on the human things mm-hmm. associated with piloting my bike, like tire grip, temperature of the track, um, compression of my front forks, uh, application of rear brake in a turn, et cetera, et cetera. So the types of really subtle things that I may inherently know as a human, but not compute necessarily because they've become rote behaviors for me. Whereas the deep blue, algorithm was capable of computing a whole bunch of different processes that Kasparov either had thought about and forgotten, hadn't thought about, not leveraged, or hasn't come around to yet. And that's probably why, I mean, I I don't know enough about the, the game, to be honest with you, to pontificate on why, but that's probably why there was some skill involved. Skill is a very nebulous term when you're talking about machines. Sure. Um, yeah, you bring up a, a really interesting point, you know, going, think, talking about you on your bike, uh, as you lean into a turn, mm-hmm. right, you know, your knee is like, I don't know, six centimeters from the ground. Or on the ground. Or on the ground, right, depending <laughs> on how, uh, how you're feeling that day. Exactly. Uh, how much you love your knee pads. Um and a lot of that, or most of that is going to be driven by your experience, right? Does the bike feel like it's at the right angle? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you brought up like, I, I don't know consciously what my tire tread is, yeah. how, how much tread I have on, on each wheel, how, where it's worn, where it's not. Is there, rubble, is there rubber and pebbles on the track? 
Mm-hmm. Is the wind mm-hmm. gusting at 12 degrees or 12 miles per hour to the east that's going to blow you got it? it. Whatever. Uh, and that there are applications where we could see something like an AI embedded into our everyday devices, we'll use your, your motorcycle, to compensate for those things. So as mm-hmm. you're leaning, it's either going to resist you to keep you in the optimal space or yep. push you further for, further over to get you into that optimal angle. Does that start to deteriorate the human experience, the thrill of riding a motorcycle in your, well, in your opinion? Uh, it's a great, great question because I'm sure like you and Christy, you guys have been on business trips where you get a rental car that has this lane assist thing. Mm-hmm. And the moment that you get close to that dashed line, it begins to vibrate the steering wheel. Well, oh my gosh, if that happened to me at 200 miles an hour on a motorcycle, yeah, there's definitely some negative feedback that would be occurring. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, many of the manufacturers today, BMW is really, really advanced in in rider aids. Ducati is very, very advanced in rider aids right now. And what we're seeing is the the industry, well, automobiles are doing the same thing with Tesla and Rivian and others. They're taking artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities and saying, What can I do to enhance the user experience? What can I do to enhance the user safety, the rider's safety, the driver's safety, whatever the case is? And they're taking very, very metered approaches to mitigating some of the risk that we we take on these things. For example, uh, one of my motorcycles is a 2014 model. Well, the 2021 model is it's millennia ahead of where the 2014 model is from a rider safety and rider enjoyment perspective. What I could do on the 14 model was much more human driven. The mistakes were purely mine. The advancements um, were purely mine. Now in the 2021 models, for example, the advance, any advancement that I might have on that bike would be purely technological, not necessarily skill-based because it makes up for all the mistakes that I would engage. So I wouldn't crash as much. That's a wonderful thing, except when it comes to learning, right? Right. Not necessarily that crashing equals learning. That's not what I meant to imply, but making small mistakes and figuring out, okay, that was a bit too far, or I, I engaged that corner wrong, or I applied a little bit too much trouble, whatever the case is. All of those things come to experiential components of learning bikes now don't allow you to, well, they do allow you to do that. It's just that when it happens, it's already catastrophic. So I, I, I take that in, in at least two ways, uh, two that I'll go through. One is humans have a, our brains operate by drawing out memorable things, positive or negative, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a memorable, like, I, did I put the, the cap on the toothpaste this morning? That's something mm-hmm. I do every day. I, if you ask me on any given day, did I do it? I, I, I can't give you a definite answer. Probably yes, because that's what my routine Routine is, is. Yeah. right? But if I were to take the toothpaste, squeeze it and shoot it on the mirror, I'm going to remember that day, Yeah. right? The positive or negative will come when somebody somebody else who lives in my house sees and says, what did you do, right? Right, right. sure. So same with riding a bike, right? It's only after something has happened that we assign it, whether it was a good or a bad Mm -hmm. outcome, Mm -hmm. And I think when we're learning... We need both the good and, and the bad, right? Because that, that teaches us the boundaries to stay. Mm-hmm. Not that we have to have a catastrophic outcome or a crash, to your point. Like crashing doesn't necessarily mean learning. You could just be a right. bad driver, right? right? 
but it teaches you the boundaries of how far on this given apparatus can you push certain limits, Mm -hmm. right? It's through experimentation that you find that out. As we flash forward to modern vehicles, modern technologies, not everybody's looking for that type of experience, right? Like when I get in my car, I love my lane assist. I love that it keeps me in the middle of the road because my car is often full of noise and safety primary is a primary concern of mine with my family in the car, but it also allows me to enjoy other things, other aspects of the drive. It elevates my experience. I don't have to worry. I I remember my parent, one of my parents' cars when he lived in Saudi Arabia had no power steering. Mm -hmm. So I used to watch my mom, I used to watch my mom micro steer to try and stay in the lane. And now it's like, I, I don't even have, I do keep my hands on the wheel, but I wouldn't have to, right? Because the, it would, my car will keep me in my lane. That allows me to enjoy the other things that car, my car maker uh, has put into the car, vibrating seats, ventilated seats, the nice sound system, right? Elevates the experience. Now, when I think of contests and competitions of human skill, like motorcycle racing or F1, mm-hmm. right? There are, there are, there's a fine line between having technology do the work and providing technology for the drivers to make use of. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was watching a video of um, Hamilton go through and try to explain what's on his steering wheel and all the different triggers and buttons. And somebody asked, how often are you touching these buttons and switches? And he's like, every lap. Every lap, I'm making adjustments, either to the, the tension on the brakes on the front right, shifting it to the back. Mm-hmm. And there was something, he's like, if I told you about this, you wouldn't understand it. It does, it does X, Y, and Z, but that's about as much as you're going to get. <laughs> and that could all be done by a computer if they yep. wanted to, right? But that would remove the human element from racing itself yep. of trying of figuring out when do I need to make these adjustments based on what I'm feeling in the car. I, I would like to go off of that before you jump into another question and ask, you know, based on what you just said, we're at a very interesting point in time, right? Where you have, you have people that have gone through the experience. I mean, Jeff, you're even saying with your motorcycle experience, you have been in the manual. You understand the foundations because you have been in the manual. You are also now at a part where there's augmentation to the vehicles that you're driving from a safety perspective, from other perspectives. I think about cyber and I think about how right now we are also in the manual. The people that are developing these models happen to have lived in both the manual process and Mm -hmm. now are living in the model process. Is there anything that you think of when it comes to fast forward to somebody whose foundations are working with a model that's been pre-established? Are we mindful of the fact that you lose some of the foundations that you got from driving the motorcycle with no augments. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Probably because I see the evolution of cyber, certainly from the perspective that Darktrace has taken it, um, the evolution is constantly adaptive. I think that's an important component. One of the challenges I've see, I see in the marketplace today is the lack of adaptation to behavior, lack of adaptation to the threat actor or the threat vector or or whatever. Um, And 
the, the primary reason for that, and Christy, I don't know if this is the direction you were going with the question, but what it's triggering off in my mind is when we look at cyber today, we look at really two primary camps. One camp is, is a camp that says, well, if I know everything that goes on in the world, then I can tell everybody who hasn't been compromised by anything going on in the world how to protect themselves from that going on in the world, right? All the known bads I can mitigate by telling everybody, this is how you protect yourself from the known bads. Well, that's valuable, obviously, because you don't want to be attacked by Triton or WannaCry or whatever the case is, right? But at the same time, we're not seeing all of the opportunity in the future for compromise, which is nation state insider, APT, um, malicious insider, uh, supply chain, as an example. And how do you mitigate those? Well, there's the other camp which says, okay, we can certainly see the known bad stuff, but what about all the stuff out there that you can't see? And how do we constantly learn and address the stuff that comes out from a nation state, which probably has no signature or rule? How do I mitigate against the um, disgruntled employee who's going to steal all your intellectual property and walk out the door? How do I mitigate against the supply chain compromise that you never saw coming in because it's a trusted insider now? Well, that's the two camps, the rule signature-based camp and the self-learning AI camp. Those are really the two plays. And I think to the motorcycle example, the self-learning or, or the, uh, the, the very rudimentary kind of um, rule signature set, that's the analog world of an older motorcycle, right? Where it's really up to the human to manage that information so that they can make decisions. In the AI world, it's really the combination of the human and the technology to figure out what's the right, what's the right issue here. And, and that's where artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think, give us so much power in the world today to help us understand this is truly a risk or this is really not a risk by learning that, that uh, what normal and what abnormal are. Yeah. I don't know if that's where you're going, but that's where your question took me. Well, I think it does actually respond a fair bit to what Brad was saying earlier, even in the context of, say, opening up to more of the, say, benefits of having the car that you were mentioning, Brad. I can enjoy all of these things because other things are taken care of while Absolutely. I'm doing this. And so when yeah. I think about it, even Brad's earlier question about well, are we concerned? Do we think about strategy as being something that could be developed by AI machine learning? And it's interesting because I think you don't you don't lose the human aspect of it. It's that suddenly you have the resource to support and augment yourself is kind of the the overall theme that both of you have kind of talked about. Is really I get the opportunity then to think about all these different data points, but I don't have to store them in my repository. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the it's the human experience, the human skill set and capability augmented by technology. I think that's a maybe I've been dancing around that for the past fifty seven minutes or so, but uh, <laughs> that's I think that's a that's actually one hundred percent accurate. It's been a fun dance. Yeah, <laughs> always. Is. <laughs> well, now that we've danced all our dances, my dance card has been filled. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining Christy and I in today's episode. It was it was a great conversation. Hopefully, we'll get to have you back again to talk about more uh, in the AI ML world because uh, this is just a topic that that she and I both love exploring. And thank you so much for having being with us today. 
Thank you both. It was really fantastic to be here. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the, the humanistic nature of it. We back and forth to the real world and, and the, and the cyber world. So thank you for bringing me on and, and I look forward to coming back whenever you guys are ready. All right. Thank you. Thank you.